Downloads of this show are available on Podomatic.com and the Podomatic mobile app. You are listening to Troubadours and Tours with E.W. Conundrum Demure on Radio Free Brooklyn. Welcome to episode 289 of Troubadours and Tours with yours truly, E.W. Conundrum Demure. On this week's episode, we have regular contributor, artist, musician, vagabond, expat living in the south of France, poet, JQ. And we talk with JQ about arrogant Americans, about his recent slug phase, how elites act like spoiled children, and we are surprised. We discuss a bit about Turkish poetry in the garden and how maybe human existence is becoming an anachronism in a way because of our reliance and our preoccupation with technology. Are we becoming cyborgs? We talk about a lot of great things with JQ, so get ready. We also have a wonderful EW essay titled Seamless Superman, an article from a recent edition of the New Yorker magazine titled Bee Cops by Michael Schulman, and a poem called Cyborg. And of course, as is always the case, we will imbue all of this with the wonderful energy coming from several great tunes. I'd like to say hey to all the listeners from WFTE in Scranton and Mount Cobb, Pennsylvania, Radio Free Brooklyn in Brooklyn, New York, Vermont, we have listeners in Burlington, Vermont, WBTV, also Bellow Falls, Vermont, at Black Sheep Radio, W-O-O-L. I'd like to say hello to all of our listeners in Maine at uh, Harpswell Radio and at KSVR in Mount Vernon, Washington State, and all you other great folks listening to the show. It's so nice to have you with us. So let's get to it. Episode 289 of Troubadours and Rock On Tours.
Seamless Superman. At first, it seems perhaps crack cocaine has irrevocably altered his brain to make him think he is something of importance. But perhaps he is indeed someone of importance. He sits across the table from one of our worst chief executives in the history of modern-day Western civilization and spouts off in all directions an impressive stream-of-consciousness diatribe whilst wearing the baseball cap with the listening commander's slogan inscribed on top of his head. Just a bit tilted, a rebellious act, I suppose. He talks about social problems, economics, psychology, art, ego, and believes he is making a difference, I think. Or maybe it is just a marketing gig for a new line of clothes or a fresh single about to be dropped into the World Wide Web. I wonder, though, if he reflects on the distinct possibility that he's being used to help the man presently in charge to look hip, to look concerned about the everyday folk who like the artistic output of this self-absorbed court jester. I do not really know. Maybe I am missing the significance others are seeing. Maybe Kanye and Donald are the new representation of U.S. Ebony and Ivory, bridging racial divides and socioeconomic disparity as they foster for the world to see narcissistic accomplishments to the greatest heights ever seen and forever the highest, the best, seamless Superman. The milk is out, I've barely been to college and I've been doubtful of all that I've dreamed of The brink of my existence Essentially it's a comedy The gap in my teeth And all that I can cling to The milk is sour Shalala, um, um, shalala Um, shalala, um, um, shalala The milk is sour With olives on my thumbs And all that I've stuck to And all that I've clung to I thought like a dog this world that I've trusted has been over and busted and rested by an arbitrary sonogram. Shalala, ooh, ooh, shalala, ooh, shalala, ooh, ooh, shalala, ooh, shalala, ooh, ooh, shalala, ooh, shalala, ooh, ooh, Never be your ego, she'll never be a bandit She'll never get 
to eat you like your heart's a pomegranate I'm throwing out the milk, the olives got old I'm tired of my mind getting heavy with mold I need to start a garden, I need to start a garden I need to start a garden, I need to start a garden Gonna start a garden in my backyard Gonna start a garden in my backyard Cause making this song up is just as hard Cause making this song up is just as hard Hello, JQ Public. Is that you? Uh, it's JQ. Hello, EW. How are you? Oh, yeah, we dropped the public, right? You're no longer public. You're private now. <laughs> well, I'm not JQ private either. J J <laughs> okay, you're just JQ. Yeah, yeah. It's my initials. J JQ. He's a regular contributor here on Troubadours and Rock On Tours. He is our, uh, as we call him, global hobo. Uh, we're talking with him as he sits in his hovel somewhere in the south of France, not too far away from Toulouse. You call it a hovel, I call it a palace, but you're probably more right than me. No, I'm just an arrogant, judgmental uh, citizen of the United States. Well, that goes, as the French say, without saying, but uh, <laughs> you're, you're probably right anyway, regardless. <laughs> so how are you, my man? I, I hear there's good news on your end. Uh, the, this show has been picked up by, is it Pacifica? Yeah, Pacifica. Well, congratulations to you. I have a, a glass of 10-year-old Aberdour scotch, so I'm raising it to you as we speak. Oh, thank you. And well, as I've been telling all of our regular contributors, uh, one of the reasons we have been picked up by Pacifica is because we have quality uh, regular contributors like you, you know, so it helps. Thank you, sir. Oh, it's a pleasure to be part of the show. So what are we on to today? Well, you know, we haven't spoken for a while, you know. Um, you've, you've been, I'm sure, making um, the rounds of, of uh, various international periodicals and and uh, social media, and, and you, you, I'm wondering what you think is is going on in, in uh, the United States, your your native land. Well, uh, it's a good question. Actually, I've I've, I've been laying very low. You know, Charles Bukowski once wrote, "Sometimes you have to know how to be a slug," and uh, I always thought those were wide word, wise words. And I, I've been in a slug phase recently. I got since I got back from Corsica in uh, about three, four weeks ago, three weeks ago. And uh, I've been working in studio, but not paying much attention to the news, but that's often a good thing. You just pay a little bit of attention to it because you get less caught up in it. And you end up getting the story anyway. Uh, you know, getting obsessed over the news is, is a very unhealthy and very common modern habit. You know, uh, people just sort of sitting glued to the, the biased network of their choice. But I, I did follow the Kavanaugh story a little bit. But, you know, just when you don't pay attention to it, it just seems like more of the same old thing. Just the elites acting like 
spoiled, crazy children. That's an insult to children. And everybody tearing their hair out about it, and an increasing polarization in American society. Uh, it's it's disturbing, and we, we talk about it, and everybody seems to recognize it, and it doesn't seem to slow down. Same old, same old. Same old, same old. But, you know, not too long ago, here's a theme for you. I've been working a lot on some new pieces of music, and, and when I take a break, I... I often trip down, you know, one of those internet rabbit holes into YouTube videos and things. And back to back, I, I saw two things that got me reflecting. One was that Elon Musk recently appeared on the Joe Rogan podcast. And I listened, I didn't listen to the whole thing, but you know, a fair chunk of it. Musk is a, is a, is a quirky and interesting guy. I kind of like him. Um, and he said at one point, you know, you have to realize, I'm paraphrasing, obviously, but he said you have to realize that you know, when you talk about AI and the artificial intelligence in, in the future and, you know, those sort of paranoid visions of our robot overlords taking over, that you are already a cyborg. That when you are glued to your cell phone and using it as, you know, you sort of outsourced your memory to Google. Because anytime you need to think of something, you look it up, right? Or remember the name of an actor or a writer or a, an historical event. Uh, always carrying that around with you. Okay, you carry it in your pocket for now. But you're already consistently, constantly, for some people, engaged with artificial intelligence that becomes part of your own, and so you are already, in that sense, a cyborg now. In other words, we are cyborgs now. And I, I, that, that really got me thinking. And then, clicking down that rabbit hole, I just happened on something completely unrelated, which was... Uh, a stand-up routine by, uh, what's his name, John Mulaney, who was talking about, on a similar theme, uh, was making a, had a little bit about um, how, you know, the robot overlords, speaking of them, you go onto internet, which is, and you're dealing with AI, once again, and the robot checks with you to make sure that you're not a robot. <laughs> and it asks you a tricky question, like, uh, well... Here are some letters. They don't look like normal letters. Is that a three or an E? Which of these photos has a stop sign in it? Like that kind of thing. Right? And it was it was the same theme again. You know, the robot is is making oh, so you're a human, are you? Right? <laughs> and you have to convince it that you're not. You know, and at what point does the robot say, you know what? Maybe I'll only let the robots in. <laughs> so it got me thinking. Uh, because the next day that was still on my mind and I, I was doing something I often do. I was just reading a book of poetry. I was reading a, a Turkish poet named Tur um, Nazım Ikmet, who I like a lot. And, uh, you know, and so I'm sitting in the south of France reading a Turkish poet in French and I'm American. It was one of those weird modern moments. And it occurred to me that there was a feeling that I had as I was reading this book of poetry, you know, reading a paper book outside you know, in the garden of poetry, uh, that it had changed. The act of simply sitting and reading a book of poetry had changed. It felt like an anachronism to simply be doing it, which was actually an added part of the pleasure, because there was almost a, when you look at the modern world and how we're, we're moving more and more towards some sort of technocracy, you know, a, a technological society, and that we're, we're engulfed in it now, as, as things are, that it, it felt almost like a rebellion to be sitting there wasting 
a good chunk of an afternoon reading a book of poetry because poetry has no social impact or relevance anymore. It's it's essentially a dead art form, you know, except maybe in, in hip hop lyrics and somebody like Kendrick Lamar. But that's a very different ball game, isn't it? Right. And I began to think, my God, is life becoming life itself becoming an an anachronism, or is or a human life at least, our social life. We we only relate to each other really through social media, you know. And I'm no Luddite, you know that, I love technology, but are we actually becoming anachronisms? Is that a sort of subconscious, let's say, sense that we all have that is part of the growing stress and anxiety and depression levels in our society? So I'm throwing that question back at you, E.W. Well, you know, it's for first of all, I'm taken aback by the notion that poetry is a dead art. I don't, you know, for me... It's such a vital part, important part of my existence. Um, well, certainly and, me as well. I, I, you, you know, I am a poet and you know a sort of troubadour, you know, songwriter and a poet. But here's the thing: you and I are older. You have to look at the generation coming up and, and the way they function and what they're dealing with and the world they're inheriting. Yeah. So if you're looking at that uh, that uh, segment of society. And the way that they interact, you know, I, I often think, and by the way, I want to mention to you too, uh, your volume level seems a little low on this end, so may, I don't know if you're far away from the mic or whatever, if you could do something on your end to adjust it, that'd be great, if not, you know, whatever. But How's that? Uh, yeah, that's much better. Uh, that was actually a little seductive. How's that? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I actually, it's a good thing you mentioned it, I changed my audio setup here, so I'm actually sitting in my studio I'm plugged into the mixing board as I talk to you because before I, I had the impression every time we've done one of these that I had to shout and that I always sounded a little hysterical so now <laughs> I can get I can get right up on the mic and do my DJ voice you know. <laughs> stop <laughs> stop it anyway uh, anyway let's, uh, the, let's not get hot bothered here life as is becoming an anachronism life itself there well, there is a general sense that poetry is just an, an example but but uh, Things that, you know, basic social interactions that they, they feel, we almost have a nostalgia as we're doing them because they seem like they're disappearing. And I have a little anecdote. A friend of mine owns a bar and he's our age. Uh, he told me one day, and this happens often now, uh, but one day he realized he's sitting behind the bar and there are maybe 15 people in there on a Tuesday night or what have you. And they all have a pint of beer in front of them. And they're all on their phones, and no one's talking to anybody. And he doesn't understand why they came out to the bar. <laughs> but that's that's almost a cliche now, that experience. You know, I first noticed that I, I was back in the States. I saw, I saw you at that time in uh, 20, late 2014 playing a bunch of concerts. And it was the first time that I, I went to a restaurant in Philadelphia with a, a, a bunch of friends. And everybody but me slapped a, a cell phone down on the table as we were ordering, you know, as we, as we, as we sat down actually, and we're like ordering an aperitif, you know, a little happy hour drink before getting started. And I had never seen that happen before. And it was 2014. I'm always late to the game, man. I didn't get high speed internet until 2010. So, well, you're living in a rural environment in South of France. So I guess that makes sense. Um, but, um, you know, it is changing everywhere, though. I, I just recently was uh, in a, a room with 
a park ranger from the rainforest in Costa Rica. He was talking to uh, an environmental studies class that I teach, and he was talking about his concern regarding many of the indigenous uh, peoples in Costa Rica living in villages that they've lived in for hundreds, uh, maybe more years. And now uh, he's noticing the young people all running around with cell phones and and being preoccupied with that more than they are about learning uh, the the old cultural ways uh, that uh, ha- has existed in in these enclaves for as I said centuries, and he thinks it's going to get it's going to be lost soon. Well, that's that's this is the acceleration of a process that has been going on for a very long time, right? But let's you know let's narrow this because it's such a big topic. You know, if, if you're discussing the, the the trend, the general global trend toward the what towards a technocracy, towards total technological takeover of our lives, um, let's narrow it. We were talking about poetry, so let's just talk about music since it's something I do. You know, that's that's my gig uh, because at any rate. You know, Allen Ginsberg, the, the beat poet, recognized a long time ago, he, he said the first time he heard Bob Dylan, he wept because he realized that poetry was no longer something you did on the page. Now it was moving into music, which was actually the end of a, a great cycle, because poetry in the ancient world had started off, the, the whole reason it was created was to give rhythm and rhyme so you could remember more text, Right. That's what, you know, the, the, the bards, the Homer's Iliad and, and the, 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 the Nordic epics and uh, the Vedas in India, they were chanted and they rhymed and had meter and rhythm so that they could be remembered, right? And then, so they were musical. Poetry was, was a form of music. It was sung, actually. And then eventually it became, you know, with the development of, of civilization, it became its own thing on the page, on scrolls, and then eventually the printing press, and et cetera. And he, saw, he heard Bob Dylan and realized, no, now it's going back into music. And it's true that the most important poets, uh, let's just say in, in, in American culture, uh, for the last 50 years, have worked largely through music. You, you just throw names out like Bob Dylan, Joni Mitchell, Leonard Cohen, Tom Waits, right? These, Lou Reed, those are our bards, and they sing. And they, they don't all necessarily sing well, <laughs> or in Lou Reed's case, in key. But it doesn't matter, because they had something to say. Okay? Now that is disappearing itself. You know, there have been a lot of modern studies on, you know, there's this very common idea that, uh, and, and I've been hearing this for decades, music ain't what it used to be. It was better before. And you can chalk part of that off to the fact that every generation likes the music it grew up with better than what's being done now. And that is very true. Sure. But, but this has actually been scientifically validated on numerous occasions. Um, one of the biggest studies done was in about 2012 and it was the, the Spanish national research council. And they did a, a, an extensive study, like 500,000 songs, popular songs dating from like the mid fifties up until I think it was about, a year or two before they started the study, right? So like 2010 or 11. And they found, they studied, the, the ironic thing is they had to use technology to make this study because you had to take these hundreds of thousands of songs and use complex al- algorithms to get the information in order to get the data that they ended up with. So they, they looked at three specific things. 
timbral diversity. That's a big one. So that's the, the timber of a song is its sound texture. It's all the, mm-hmm. the complexity, the, the number of instruments and types of sounds, and also loudness and softness, right? They looked at harmonic complexity as well, which is, uh, you know, harmonies, for people who don't know music theory, basically when you hear several voices singing at the same time, they're not singing the same notes. The main vo- voice is singing the melody. That's what you hear. And then other voices decorate it with other notes that go with it, but they're not singing the same line, Okay. And those are known as harmonies. And then they also studied loudness, which is a very modern phenomenon that we can leave aside for now. But it has to do with the way things are compressed digitally in modern studios. So anyway, um, what they found was is that scientifically all of these things had degraded uh, a lot. Since, uh, a since when? Since the mid-50s. So they were looking at chart-topping songs right, from the mid-50s. And, you know, timbral, the, 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 the complexity and diversity of timber had d- degraded rapidly. Uh, th- it's, and it's, it's severe. Um, when you say music used to be, you know, there's this general sense that like the late 60s, early 70s, for example, when you think of the Beatles and, and David Bowie and Elton John and, and the progressive rock that was happening, like, you know, groups like Yes and King Crimson and all that was going on. And then there was all sorts of folk music and singer-songwriters there was more diversity of of types of music to begin with, you know, uh, but also modern pop music. We've gotten to a point since the digital revolution where the great majority of top billboard, you know, billboard top 100 songs uh, are made with four basic elements. You have a keyboard, right, a sampler, a drum machine, and then software to give effects to all of this. And the keyboard itself can do any instrument because you work through what's called MIDI and it's digital. So you can play on a keyboard and you can get guitar sounds, you can get bass sounds, you can get horns, you can do all of that. Or you can sample sounds and then rearrange them digitally. But well, let me ask you a question though. Now, this group again, Spanish, uh, what was the name of the group uh, that put this study together? The, uh, the Spanish National Research Council. Now, well, they're, they're, they're basically... Well, why did they come to some conclusion as to why all of this has degraded since the 1950s, timber, harmonic diversity or complexity and loudness? Why has that degraded? Do they know why? They weren't after the why. They were after, you know, simply, is it true? Is it true? And they... And they, they pretty much proved it with, you know, graphs and charts and, <laughs> and I guess uh, at the end, a nice PowerPoint presentation, whatever. But yeah, I mean, numerically and just factually, it is true that music is degraded. I mean, here. So, here's, when, people here's say, mo- so when people say, you know, back in my day, music was much better than it is today. Scientifically, now we could say it's true because of the Spanish National uh, Research Council. Yes and no. Let me show you these the charts. Yeah, but, yeah, but hold on, because it's not that music is, was better. It's the music that sells, because here's the thing. Capitalism and technology have combined to create a music industry that functions very differently than it used to when, you know, record companies would invest, you know, lots of money into artists and give them time to develop, whereas today it, it, it's, they can't afford to, and it, it has to be sort of instantaneous. Let me give you an example. Like, something most people don't know, and that is really important to know, is that if, you know, if you look at chart-topping songs of the last, say, 20 years, thousands of them have been written by just two men. One is named Lucas Gottwald, who's an American. They, they call him Dr. Luke. 
And the other is, I think he's Swedish, and his name is uh, Max Martin. And so when you are listening to hit songs by, like, I don't know, like Justin Bieber and boys bands or Justin Timberlake or Will I Am, Pink, Maroon 5, Katy Perry, like all these chart-topping artists have used these two songwriters. And I think Max Martin has at least like 30 number one singles over the last 20 years. Well, that's craziness. You are listening to Troubadours and Tours with E.W. Conundrum Demure on Radio Free Brooklyn. It is, and most people don't know that, and it's deliberate. They don't want you to know that. And they, there's, a, there's a musicologist, I forget his name, but he discovered something. It actually has a name. It's called the Millennial Whoop. And if I sing it for you, if you just hear these notes, uh, oh, oh, like that, oh, oh, okay, and uh, if I sing that at you, immediately your brain says, oh, I've heard that before, right? Yeah. What song does that come from? But the thing is, it comes from literally uh, a few hundred songs. You've heard that countless times. It's going from the, the fifth note of the scale to the third, back to the fifth, then back down to the third, or up to the down to the third and you've heard that before in like you know katy perry songs and other songs because it works and And both of these songwriters use it and And you've heard it in very in variations in literally hundreds of songs and i this is this is fascinating all of this and I'm, i'm just trying to tie it together you know we have like you know eight nine minutes left in our conversation how what what's the significance of this what 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 are the ramifications of of these observations uh that you're and research data that you're you're sharing with regard to us being cyborgs with uh, regard to uh everything we are doing now being an anachronism how does this all tie together j q okay uh in a to put it in a nutshell we started off talking about you know this strange sense that i that I identified in myself, and I don't know if it's, it can be generally said, but I think people might be able to identify with it, that somehow things that you and I grew up assuming would always be around, uh, and I came up with the example of poetry, you know, but also the way we interact socially without cell phones and without social media, you know, we, all, we both grew up before that. They are actually beginning to disappear. And that there's no reason to assume that this trend is not going to continue. You get a very acute uh, example of this when you look at modern music and this study I mentioned. There's others. There's a bunch of them. There's a study of lyrics as well, song lyrics, that have over the last, I think, 30 years dropped below a third grade reading level. Right. (laughs) Uh, And they use metrics uh something called the flesh kincaid readability index it's the same thing they use for educational for literature and for educational purposes to to measure the grade level of of language they they've used it on trump to to determine you know the the low grade level of of his average speech they did this with song lyrics too with a lot of song lyrics over so many years and it it they they notice a specific drop so Popular music in both the music and the lyrics gives you a good example of the, the dehumanization and the technologification, I'll, I'll create we'll, a neologism. We'll go with that. Yeah. Of our life, we'll go with it. Uh, and the fact that it, it's a little scary, it's, it's a scary idea, but it, it, it's putting words on something that we all sort of feel and that I think is related to the, the increasing levels of anxiety and depression that we see, and therefore the increased use of opioids and other things that 
human life is somehow, for now, slowly perhaps, but is, you know, history constantly accelerates, is, is the lesson of the last century. It's becoming an anachronism. We are becoming an anachronism. There is, when you sit and read a book of poetry or listen to a, an artist like Leonard Cohen, there's, who is, who is, should be as relevant now as ever because his work is genius, right? There's already a sense of nostalgia. And notice as well that there's no artist like that anymore in popular music. None. Now, they still exist. They're still out there. Uh, you mentioned, you know, does this mean music is actually getting worse? No. There's this massive capitalism, this massive force making money and putting this music, you know, it's very deliberate. Then when you hear a new song like Gangnam Style or something, it's sort of repulsive when you first hear of it. It's, it's not good. But you hear it everywhere you go, and it'll end up on soundtracks, and it's here, and it's there, and you go online, and it's playing over something, and it, it just seems to be everywhere. Well, there's a lot of money behind that, and a lot of deliberate placement of pop songs. But maybe, maybe this, maybe all this though, JQ is is us evolving. You know, maybe you and I and anybody else who has an issue with this uh, change, the, what we call dehumanization, um, is really just old timers now wanting to let go and uh, move into the future with these new trends and maybe this will take us to somewhere higher maybe we'll be less emotional and thus more rational and uh, less you know uh, decisions based on gut feeling instincts that maybe oftentimes is, is not the smartest most intelligent approach maybe we're evolving you can censor me right don't make it difficult for me to put this on the air. I don't want to have to edit too much. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, forget those people. Yeah. You could say F, uh, F those. Yeah. Okay. Like uh, CeeLo Green. For, yeah. Okay. Well, yeah, in a sense, because, all right, you know, certainly I'm all for increasing rationality. But we are not getting increasing rationality out of the lessening of our emotions. We're simply getting more inapt to deal with the emotions that are there, which is why we are increasingly medicated, increasingly depressed, and increasingly anxious. Okay? Uh, it's not that modernism, you know, in itself is a bad or is an evil thing at all. We are not dealing with it well. We're not handling it well. We're advancing. This is a cliche by now. We're advancing far more rapidly technologically than uh, psychologically in terms of our emotions and our thought. And we have to do something to catch up. Aesthetically, it's costing us because humanity without quality art. Here's the thing. Quality art is out there. It's there. It's very hard to monetize it now. I can name just off the top of my head. I could name a band. I have to censor again because their name needs to be censored. Okay. TFS, Tropi Tropical F Storm. They're an Australian band. You probably haven't heard of them. They just put out a record this year, which if you like good rock music and sort of innovative artsy punk flavored rock music this is a great band you haven't heard of them most people haven't i'm always searching out music like this right and they're just an example off the top of my head the music's out there they can't sell like a timberlake can sell right or a that's always the thing. case some of the greatest artists you never hear of you know uh if they have a local yes, regional yes. following it's it's lucky but it's not always the case that the best and most relevant and impactful and aesthetically uh, advanced music 
it, it can rise to the top, and that happens. It happened in the late 60s, early 70s. It happened briefly in the late 80s and early 90s when you had Public Enemy and Nirvana and Fishbone and the Red Hot Chili Peppers. They, they were the best bands around, and they were making great music. Hip-hop was fantastic. Hip-hop is, is still in pretty good shape now because you get artists like Kendrick Lamar and, and, and uh, J. Cole and others that are, that are excellent, right? So hip-hop is, is actually in decent shape compared to rock music or folk music or other types. Well, I know we're going to, uh, we're going to hear a song right after uh, our talk, which is just about done, JQ, believe it or not, from you. And I have to say, you always produce, put together wonderful pieces of musical art and I, th- I thank you for sharing another one here on Troubadours okay. and Rock on Tours is uh, this one on a ride? I can, I can yeah. present that one actually yeah it's a, it's a song that tells the story of a carnival barker a carnival guy who actually uh, uh, runs the Ferris wheel and is sort of the, the main guy sort of the, the, you know, the guy at the, uh, who, who runs this thing and they head into a small podunk town and he seduces a young local country girl uh, and it's a very positive and happy song, and I just have to have a disclaimer. She's older than 18. I just have to say that because you know how things are these days. Yeah. I don't want to get, I don't want to get in trouble, man. No, I'll you say should. She's, eight, she's, she's at least 18, the character in the song. Okay? Yeah, I'm, thank you for qualifying that. And uh, any any um, final words to the throngs of listeners from J-Cube uh, until next time that we talk on, the, on Troubadours and Rock On Tours? Something to give them to, to go into the world with, a little extra nourishment? Yeah, uh, the worse things get uh, and the more challenging life is, the more you're alive. How's that? I like it, JQ. Good good luck with uh, that thing on Friday. I hope to see you in person soon, but if not, again, we'll be talking to you very soon. It's a pleasure having you on the program. All right, brother. Congratulations again on, on the show growing. I think that's a fantastic thing, and it's great to be a part of it. Grazie, senor. Ciao. Hang loose, brother. Bye.
From the September 17th, 2018 edition of The New Yorker magazine, this is Law and Order, B-Cops. New Yorkers swarm for many reasons. Flash mobs, Occupy Wall Street, the Cronut Line. Two weeks ago, a group of 30,000 Manhattanites, give or take, caused a ruckus when they exercised their freedom of assembly in Times Square. The trouble was... They were bees. The runaway swarm settled on the umbrella of a hot dog cart at 43rd Street and Broadway. Within an hour, an officer from the New York City Police Department was in a beekeeping veil, sucking the swarm up with a special vacuum. The Times Square bees became instant celebrities. Reuters Live streamed the whole thing, while the official Twitter account of the NYPD, Beekeepers, fielded questions, like, question, how does this happen? Answer, just like us. They're only looking for a place to cool down. All this raised another question. The NYPD has beekeepers? There are two, it turns out. Officers Michael Laureano and Darren Mays, both are regular policemen who happen to be bee enthusiasts. Quote, We've always had an officer who shares their knowledge of beekeeping with the department. Laureano, who responded to the Times Square swarm, said a few days later. He continues, Now that beekeeping has been becoming more of a new thing for New York City, people are having rooftop bees, balcony bees, bees in the parks. We're faced with the challenges of, what if they swarm off? Mays, a midnight patrol cop in the 104th Precinct in Queens, started responding to bee calls in 2014 when the previous bee expert retired. He got into beekeeping 10 years ago when a friend showed him his hive. Quote, they'd buzz by me and I didn't twitch, he recalled. It's just the most beautiful, calming thing in the world. His wife bought him a beekeeping kit for Christmas and he now keeps a five-hive apiary in his backyard in the Hudson Valley. Laureano joined him as an official NYPD beekeeper a year ago. Quote, I grew up on a hobby farm, and I've always had a passion for agriculture, he said. He used to raise chickens at his home on Long Island, but long patrol hours made feeding and egg collecting tough, so he got into bees. Quote, The whole hive has basically everything it needs to live on its own, he said. I'm just kind of the landlord. And, of course, they produce honey, and I take some for myself as the rent. The two bee cops were talking in the first precinct in Tribeca, where Laureano works. They get an average of two calls per week. Laureano usually handles weekday swarms, while Mays covers nights and weekends, Most of the rogue swarms they collect are domesticated, 
escapees from a hobbyist's roof. But feral bees sometimes cluster in rotting tree trunks. Swarm season typically runs from mid-May through late July. This year had been slow, they said, since the harsh winter killed off a lot of city bees. Then came August 28th. Loriano was finishing his shift when he got the call from Times Square. By the time he arrived, the area was cordoned off and a ladder was in position. Quote, it was an orchestra waiting for me, he said. Mays, who had been asleep at home, got up to man the Twitter account, which quickly gained 3,000 followers. Loriano first tried to defuse the situation. He climbed up the ladder without protective gear and introduced himself to the bees. Quote, I just wanted them to know that I'm going to be up here and we're going to help you. Then he gently vacuumed them up with a contraption he had made himself using a motor, plastic buckets, and rubber hosing. Mays uses a state-of-the-art Colorado BVAC. Quote, We're not exactly sure where they came from, Loriano said of the swarm. Probably a rooftop in the surrounding area. No one has ever claimed a rogue swarm, so it's up to the bee squad to care for them. Loriano brought the Times Square bees back to his home, where they are currently settling in and doing, quote, fantastic, he said. There were no casualties. Mays keeps a hive on the roof of his precinct in Ridgewood, which he invited a visitor to check out last Wednesday. He collected its inhabitants in June from a lamppost on Worth Street downtown. It was a rare three-swarm day, Tribeca, Midtown, and Long Island City. The wooden hive was about the size of a mini-fridge. Mays put on a veiled hat and gloves and opened the cover. Quote, The key to all of this is to work slowly, he said, revealing thousands of worker bees making honey for the winter. He had just come from traffic court, and he added somewhat wistfully, quote, honeybees live in a perfect society. Everyone has a job to do, and they do it accordingly. Down in the station house, the officers were raving about the hyper-local honey that Mays handed out last summer from a swarm he'd collected near Mount Sinai. Quote, he's actually taken me up there a couple of times to put new queens in, one officer said, leaning a tattooed arm on a filing cabinet. He added, it's amazing how docile they are. One, two, three. I got hurricane and Big Danny is wasted. He said I'm the sweetest thing. That he's never tasted Mariposa singing love songs All in her dark apartment Fourteen floors of burden And fourteen floors of dying Living in the city 
And I give you something I can offer You know the heart, it's not the hopeless The heart is a lonely hunter Hot long summer day Where's it sneaking by the river Oh, I lock my dreams away And I watch the city quiver Living in the city Cyborg. The Google speaks volumes in snippets. As we Wikipedia our path through life's events, waiting for everyone to notice our existence. Magnificence. And I swear my friends never die. They just get really high. Sister 
the facts, yeah Talking like the saint on the side of the accident Talking like the claws in the lease about the late rent Ringing like the random call patch to the payphone Talking like the water rolls down Watch the water roll down And here comes the lust and phase But sit down and marry it up Episode 289 of Chumadors and Tours with yours truly, E.W. Conundrum Demure. I'd like to thank those folks who made this episode possible. First and foremost, our regular contributor, artist, musician, songwriter, poet, and vagabond extraordinaire, J.Q. Wonderful talking with you, friend. I also like to thank writer Michael Schulman and these musical artists Django Reinhardt, Stefan Grappelli, The Cars, Haley Hendrix, JQ, Hooray for the Riff Raff, Soul Coughing, Terrence Blanchard, and Branford Marsalis, too. Thank you so much for listening. Until next week. Why don't we give it a go and try to enjoy this one. Take care. <laughs>